welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Monday, April 29th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Beto O'Rourke releases his plan to address climate change. Joe Biden raises a boatload of money on his first day. Rumor has it that Stacey Abrams might announce today or tomorrow whether she's running for Senate or president. A new poll reveals that 54% of Democrats still aren't leaning toward any particular candidate. Buttigieg is returning donations from lobbyists. And finally, a grab bag of additional Biden news and analysis. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Early this morning, Beto O'Rourke's campaign released a plan to address climate change. And this is actually the first detailed policy document released by that campaign. Reading from the campaign website, the plan is, quote, a four-part framework to mobilize a historic $5 trillion over 10 years, require net zero emissions by 2050, and address the greatest threat we face, end quote. It's a fairly long plan. It comes out to about 10 pages when I thought about printing it, but then I didn't print it because it felt weird to waste paper on a climate change proposal. Anyway, so what's in the proposal? Well, there's a lot of stuff. Overall, O'Rourke's proposal specifies a series of executive actions and elements of legislation he wants to see within his first 100 days in office. Reading here from an NBC News summary, quote, The plan begins with proposed executive actions, including rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement on day one of an O'Rourke administration, and moving quickly to raise efficiency standards for buildings, cars, and appliances. Longer-term executive actions, including setting a net-zero emissions carbon budget for federal lands by 2030, and adding more national parks and monuments to protect land and seascapes. The meat of the O'Rourke plan is a promise to send Congress as his first piece of legislation a bill that would mobilize $5 trillion over the next 10 years to upgrade infrastructure and spur innovation, including more than a trillion dollars in tax incentives to reduce emissions and $250 billion dedicated directly to research and development, end quote. So that's basically the first two pillars of the four. Now, the third is a long-term goal to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. In my reading of that section of the plan, it is light on specifics. The plan says O'Rourke will, quote, work with Congress to enact a legally enforceable standard, end quote, to set this net zero 2050 plan in motion. But what is the specific plan to accomplish net zero emissions? Well, that part is not super detailed. And that may be because, as the plan just said, a hypothetical President O'Rourke would have to work with Congress, one that probably includes a Republican-controlled Senate. So while the plan lays out a series of desired outcomes, for sure, the specific mechanisms to achieve them, well, a lot of that's up to the lawmakers. Now, the fourth and final pillar of O'Rourke's plan is helping Americans prepare for and cope with extreme weather events today. This is pretty concrete with a series of specific spending goals and legal proposals. It also mentions supporting military bases in the U.S. and around the world in order to help them maintain reliable energy and clean water supplies. Okay, reading again from NBC News on this fourth pillar of the plan, quote, O'Rourke proposes to expand federal crop insurance programs increase spending on pre-disaster mitigation grants, and develop legislation to make sure communities affected by disasters build back stronger after storms, end quote. Okay, so how does O'Rourke say he will pay for this plan? As a reminder, it is billed by the campaign as, quote, the world's largest ever climate change investment in infrastructure, innovation, and in our people and communities, end quote. 
Well, here's the specific language in the proposal on how to pay for it. Quote, the bill will be funded with the revenues generated by structural change to the tax code that ensure corporations and the wealthiest among us pay their fair share and that we finally end the tens of billions of dollars of tax breaks currently given to fossil fuel companies. This investment will drive economic growth and shared prosperity, spurring job creation and adding to our GDP, reducing energy costs, improving public health, and boosting our overall economic, energy, and climate security. End quote. And that is the extent of the funding plan. Again, this might be a side effect of requiring congressional support to get it done, so it's intentionally left a little vague, but there is a clear stylistic contrast between this level of detail versus what we see in proposals like Elizabeth Warren's policy for eliminating college debt and making college tuition free. In that plan and many of her others, there are very specific numbers. She plans to add a specific tax on specific people to generate a specific calculated amount of money, which she then divides up among her other proposals. Here, O'Rourke says he'll work on changing the tax code and cutting subsidies. It's good to see a mention of funding, but it is notably vague. Now, having said that, there is quite a bit of detail on the amounts to be spent. A lot of that is investment in huge tax incentives plus direct federal funding to build new technology to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There's also quite a bit in there about infrastructure investment, including improvements to transportation in general and public transit specifically to reduce emissions, costs, and fatalities. And there's even an echo of the national service plans proposed by Pete Buttigieg and John Delaney, which I talked about on the show from Thursday, April 18th. Reading from the campaign website, here are two points about public service spending. Quote, national service grants to mobilize a new AmeriCorps generation to deploy clean energy, plant trees on marginal lands, and build more resilience to fires, floods, droughts, and hurricanes. And paid training grants through partnerships with unions, community colleges, and employers that deliver the skills to earn a job in this growing economy. End quote. On Friday, Joe Biden's campaign announced that he had raised $6.3 million on his first day. And that is the highest first day total we've seen so far in this primary though not by much. On his first day, Beto O'Rourke had $6.1 million, Bernie Sanders raised $5.9 million, and Kamala Harris was in fourth place with $1.5 million. Writing at Politico, Mark Caputo and Scott Bland put it in perspective. Quote, The former vice president was so concerned about his first day haul that he made sure to throw a fundraiser hosted at the Philadelphia home of a Comcast executive on the day of his announcement and told donors the day before that he needed their help. Before Biden's campaign released its total Friday, one bundler told Politico that he crushed it. Having passed the first self-imposed test, Biden's campaign cemented his role as a frontrunner in the race. He is leading in national and most early state polls and also in congressional endorsements, end quote. Politico also reported that the other candidates in the race used Biden's entry to raise money themselves. The Sanders campaign sent out multiple emails with the words Joe Biden in the subject line, and the Castro, Harris, and O'Rourke campaigns also used Biden's announcement in their daily fundraising. Several pointed to Biden's connections to big money donors. Here's a segment from one of the Sanders emails, quote, It's a big day in the Democratic primary, and we're hoping to end it strong, not with a fundraiser in the home of a corporate lobbyist, 
with an overwhelming number of individual donations in response to today's news. End quote. Now, I again leave you with the wise words of NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason. Here's part of what she said on the NPR Politics Podcast on April 3rd. Quote, the person who raises the most money early on doesn't necessarily get the nomination. Just ask President Jeb Bush. End quote. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, rumor time. Late last week, ABC News reporter Jeffrey Cook tweeted that he had two sources saying that Stacey Abrams will announce whether she is running for U.S. Senate in Georgia either today, which is Monday, or tomorrow, which is Tuesday. So, real soon. At the time I write and record this, Abrams has not announced anything, and Cook is also unclear whether Abrams would announce her intentions regarding running for president at the same time or not. Probably not, but maybe. While I haven't seen any confirmation of this rumor, Abrams is planning to appear in public today at 2 p.m. Eastern in a public event supporting a hearing by her voting rights group called Fair Fight Action. While I'm not sure she would announce either a Senate or presidential run on the same day as a court hearing, maybe that's exactly the right time to do so. We will have to see. For more on Abrams, check the show from Friday, April 26th. That is the one right before this one in the feed. The Abrams story is the third and final segment of that show. Let's talk polling. In an article yesterday, Scott Clement and Dan Balls at the Washington Post examined a recent Washington Post slash ABC News poll. And here is the big blinking lead. Quote, asked to name the candidate they currently support, 54% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents did not volunteer anyone. That figure is little changed from 56% in January. End quote. The article went on to note that among the minority of Democrats who actually did come up with a name that they supported, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were on top. But actually, not by much. Biden had 13%, Sanders had 9%, in third place was Buttigieg with 5%, then Harris and Warren were at 4%, and O'Rourke at 3%. Everybody else was at 1% or less. So the spread between those candidates is not nearly as large as some other polls might suggest. Now, the Post accounted for this difference by pointing out the way the question was phrased. They say in many recent polls, pollsters have read off a long list of candidates and basically asked people to pick among them. 
But in this poll, the question was, quote, if the 2020 Democratic primary or caucus in your state were being held today, for whom would you vote? End quote. So that's very open-ended. By asking the person to come up with a name in an open-ended way, the poll revealed that 47% simply didn't name anybody. Now, you kind of have to parse what that means. It is certainly possible that some of these people just cannot name a single Democratic presidential primary candidate. That does seem unlikely to me. I mean, it would be hard not to know that Biden or Sanders were in the race, for instance, if you've been near a TV or radio or other media in the last few months. What seems more likely to me is that your typical voter is just not thinking about the primary that much at this stage. So I guess thank you for being an atypical voter, my dear listener, who cares about this stuff early. What might back up that idea about low engagement with the details at this early stage is that 1% of those polled said they would vote today for Michelle Obama, and another 1% said they would vote for Hillary Clinton, and another 1% said they would vote for Donald Trump. And let me be clear, they only asked this question of people who said they self-identified as Democrats or independents-leaning Democratic. And there they are, voting for people who aren't running or who aren't Democrats. Reading from the Post one more time, quote, The high and persistent level of uncertainty suggests that many Democratic voters are considering multiple options, or have yet to pay much attention nine months before the Iowa caucuses, end quote. And here's a quick one about that sweet, sweet lobbyist money. In an email on Friday, the Pete Buttigieg campaign announced that it will no longer accept donations from lobbyists. And what's more, they're giving back the $30,250 they've already gotten from those people. Now, let's put it in context. That is a tiny drop in the bucket of his $7 million that he got in Q1, but it is certainly symbolic And it puts Buttigieg back in with the majority of Democratic candidates who are overwhelmingly vying for small-dollar donations and explicitly disavowing PAC money and other big money or big industry donations. In this cycle, most candidates want a whole bunch of people giving small amounts of money each. Grassroots, right? So the Buttigieg campaign laid out three specific things that they will not do. One, allow lobbyists to serve as bundlers for the campaign. Two, accept money from corporate PACs. And three, accept contributions from fossil fuel firms. Also, a member of the Buttigieg campaign involved in fundraising, Steve Elmendorf, who is himself a lobbyist for several big tech companies, will leave the campaign. And to close out today, here is a roundup of a giant grab bag of miscellaneous Joe Biden news that has happened since the announcement on Thursday and our coverage on Friday. There are 10 million think pieces out there about Biden. I've read most of them, and I'm going to pick a few things that seem to kind of matter here. First up this morning, as expected, the International Association of Firefighters has endorsed Biden via a tweet and a YouTube video. The video features clips of Biden talking to the IAFF union and talking in general about the power of unions. Then, IAFF General President Harold Shapeberger shows up to explain why he's behind Biden. Here's one snippet from him in the YouTube video. Quote, Joe Biden will be a champion for the public safety in America, fighting for policies and legislation that will improve the lives and livelihoods for not just firefighters, but all who work for a living. End quote. 
Second up, still on the union tip, Biden plans to appear at a union event tonight in Pittsburgh, and the New York Times reports, quote, Interviews across the state of Pennsylvania last week indicated that he draws from a wellspring of support among three key constituencies crucial to his campaign. He has the potential to attract suburban moderates defecting from the Republican Party under President Trump to invigorate black voters who were underwhelmed by Hillary Clinton and to reverse at least some losses among working class white voters, end quote. The Times then visited with all of these constituencies. Most interesting to me was their talk with black voters at a bookstore in northwest Philadelphia. One of the voters they talked to, a small business owner, said that Biden's eight-year VP status alongside Barack Obama made him the top candidate for her. Another voter simply felt Biden was the most electable candidate against Trump, and for that reason, he had already shifted his support from Sanders to Biden. For more on the various constituencies who might support Biden within Pennsylvania, read that time story. There's a link in the show notes for a really deep dive. All right, third, a pair of analysis pieces explore the notion that Joe Biden's core campaign message so far is arguably about making America great again, kind of. In Biden's case, greatness is often expressed by recalling a time when American values were more compassionate, more consistently applied, and especially applied in the context of the dignity and value of work. Now, reading from The Atlantic here, quote, On Thursday, asked by reporters what his candidacy's message to the world was, Biden said, America's coming back like we used to be, end quote. And reading from The Washington Post here, quote, Whereas President Trump evoked an idyllic past of greater economic prosperity and less political correctness, the bygone era that Biden pines for is a time before Trump, when American presidents sought to unify the country and build up national institutions, end quote. And finally, in the Biden grab bag is a story by Lucy Flores. She is the first of the recent group of women to come forward with allegations about inappropriate touching from Biden. And Flores has written an op-ed for the New York Times. Its subheading kind of says it all. Quote, politicians can make mistakes. People should be allowed to evolve. But first, they have to say they are sorry. End quote. Flores is getting at what some commentators call Biden's apology problem, the issue we discussed a little bit on Friday, where Biden seems to avoid making direct apologies for his past actions. Instead, he tends to say that he wishes those things had not happened, and he will work in the future so that they don't happen again. Anyway, the Flores piece is a great read because it tries to tease apart a bunch of tangled up issues of this particular political and cultural moment some of which Biden and all the other candidates will have to confront in this campaign. Let me read just two paragraphs from the Flores piece here. Quote, In the context of the Democratic primary election, no candidate is going to be perfect. Not all of them will have made women uncomfortable. Not all of them will have to account for their role in something as controversial and painful for the country as the Clarence Thomas hearings. But all will have made mistakes of some sort in their personal lives, taken votes in positions you don't agree with, or disappointed someone at some point. We tend to forget that candidates are people. People are imperfect, and they should be allowed to evolve. If all we do is call people out and demand accountability, but don't give them credit for actually doing what is asked, then we're not working for change. We're working to make ourselves feel righteously outraged by shaming everybody else. But evolution can't come without a genuine effort to seek atonement. End quote. 
So go read the rest, please. There is a link in the show notes. As always, it is not very long, and it is a thoughtful look at the nature of apology and history in the context of the 2019 political and social landscape. And remember, this is not entirely a Biden thing, though that is the lens that she uses to examine it. That's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Higgins. And I've been watching the reviews come in on iTunes. I appreciate them all. There are some useful critiques in there. There is some glowing stuff. Thank you to both sides of the aisle there. Uh, Meanwhile, I want you all to be ready for the next phase of this adventure. Now that Biden is officially in, I expect there to be a battle of the titans, basically everybody versus Biden. And there's going to be a lot of Biden news. So be aware that in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to make a conscious effort to make sure we don't forget the other candidates because there are a lot of them. All right. Thank you. And I will talk to y'all tomorrow.